0: Pod Academy listeners. This is a special edit just for Pod Academy of an interview with Julian Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK where he's still held up. Wikileaks have recently released a book about the US diplomatic cables, and our conversation touches on not only these cables, but also on the way that the US maintains and uses power throughout the world. Hey, you're listening to Ideas Books. My name's Craig Barfoot. Ideas Books is a weekly show talking to authors from all around the world about their latest non-fiction books. The reason I really love doing this show is that I get to read and chat to authors from, from all over the world about books which... help to explain the way the world works whether it's science, nature, economics or medicine. I'm fascinated by this attempt to understand our world just a little bit better. Which is why when I saw that WikiLeaks were publishing an analysis on the most important of the US diplomatic cables they released, I took the chance to speak to WikiLeaks editor-in-chief Julian Assange about them. Regardless of whether you think the actions of WikiLeaks are right or wrong, WikiLeaks and the release of these US diplomatic cables represent a unique look and understanding of how the US uses and maintains power throughout the world. And it gives us, for a brief second, a look at the true operations of power. For the past three years, Julian Assange has been surrounded by police in the Ecuadorian embassy, unable to leave. And through the help of some assistance and a window of good timing, we were able to get a line in to speak with him today. Julian, I, uh, I know you've got a lot going on under some uh, very trying circumstances. So uh, thank you very much for taking out half an hour of your time to chat with me today. You're welcome. With the release of the cables that this book is based upon, and then the wider release of the U- of the WikiLeaks documents, there've been some damning revelations against the U.S. and its practices. But I mean, after all this and all this information's been released, what difference have you seen? I mean, what, what what's changed, or or it, is it just business as usual for the U.S.?
1: Is there a lot more work to done? Has WikiLeaks fundamentally changed? The structure of human society? Obviously not. Um, society is extremely complex uh, and has a lot of inertia and uh, is in, in many ways in various forms of equilibrium. So you, you change one part and another part equi- uh, equilibrizes with it. Um, have we done a lot of good work uh, that has made real difference to individual human beings, that has um, thrown light on war crimes, that has uh, kicked out um, heads of intelligence in a number of different countries for their abuses, which has even released p- innocent people uh, from prison, uh, the answer is yes.
0: Right. From the beginning of your book, you, you introduce the idea of the U.S. as an empire. And, and I guess, I mean, for those listening to this who've never kind of thought in that direction before, can you maybe justify why you use such a strong word and and, and label the U.S. as an empire?
1: Well, I mean, the realists in U.S. foreign policy circles do, uh, and most of Bush neocons did. That was their self-talk. Similarly, a number of documents were published. For example, Operation Empire Challenge. Uh, the word empire is used nakedly. So, it's just, of course, the United States is not uh, like the Roman Empire. Uh, it's a different type of empire. It's a modern empire. Perhaps arguably, it's the only modern empire. But um, those that have a regional Uh, hegemons uh, also operate mostly in this modern fashion um, which is about being in in the United States case an empire of favorable agreements uh, that lead to US companies getting things that they they otherwise wouldn't uh, enforce through military uh, cultural and economic power. Um, Some people say that this description of the US as an empire is not quite correct and that it is much closer uh, to traditional empires, and that it's an an empire of bases, so an empire of military bases. Depending on how you count them, there's between 500 and about 1,500 US military bases now in over 120 countries. The nearest equivalent, Russia, only has one base outside the former Soviet Union, uh, and that's in Syria. So there's, you know, from from that perspective of boots on the ground, uh, there is only... Uh, one state that has anything that looks like an empire, and that's the United States.
0: You touch a little bit on this in your introduction to the book, and, and I'm interested in now, like this idea of uh, between hard and soft power. And, and I guess I'm asking you, when you're looking from your perspective, when you sort of have this overview of the cables as a whole, do you see the way that Western allies follow the U.S. and kind of do what the U.S. wants? Does a picture emerge of how much this following is purely because of the hard power, or how much is because of the soft power and a genuine respect and liking for the US?
1: Well, in the, in the cables, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing really about genuine respect and liking. There, it, There is a lot of sucking up that occurs uh, that is I mean, fairly obvious and disgraceful uh, from my perspective, just I guess, it's a bit humiliating. Uh, it's interesting to perceive what Washington thinks about this kind of thing. I often have the sense that he doesn't really respect it, even though they might demand it. Uh, an example of that is from here, from the government in the UK that I have to deal with, which is the conservative Tory government of David Cameron. Uh, we published a cable which is in the book on page 183, the chapter about Europe. Uh, so what's the situation? Uh, um, William Hague, the foreign minister and one of the principals in the Conservative Party, goes in uh, to the M.C. to U.S. ambassador and start speaking about, you know, the U.K.-U.S. relationship. And this is what he says. Oh, sorry, this is a, a, what the U.S. ambassador says about the meeting. Uh, Haig said he, David Cameron and George Osborne, that's the treasurer, uh, were, quote, children of Thatcher and staunch Atlanticists. For his part, said Hague, he has a sister who is American, spends his own vacations in America, and like many similar to him, considers America, quote, the other country to turn to, unquote. Asking his senior advisor her views, she said, quote, America is the essential country, unquote. Haig said that whoever enters 10 Downing Street as prime minister soon learns of the essential nature of the relationship with America. He added, quote, we want a pro-American regime. We need it. The world needs it, unquote. So two things you can take away from that. Uh, first of all, that the word regime is quite interesting there uh, and what Haig what means by that. Uh, but you've got very senior conservative uh, in the government going into the Washington embassy and madly trying to placate, placate and suck up uh, to DC because he obviously knows this is going back to DC. Why is that necessary? How could that possibly be necessary to... Um, humiliate yourself like that uh, what if he doesn't do you know this is a smart guy if he doesn't do it what's the result if he does do it what's the payoff uh, so that's something we see mirrored across um, US embassies uh, even in powerful countries like the United Kingdom is that a genuine like for the United States in that in this particular case it's clear that hague is glad handling the US ambassador you know he's Demonstrating his subordination and um, allegiances to the United States, and you have to ask the question: Why is it necessary to do that? What's the penalty for not doing that?
0: Um, like with this idea of of power, I mean, from from your beginning in WikiLeaks two thousand six until now, how have your perceptions changed regarding power and the way that governments and and powerful groups work?
1: They have changed. I mean, I, I was always an institutionalist to the degree that. I believe in institutions, and on the other hand, I believe institutions operate for their own benefit wherever they can. And so the the kind the classical notion we have had of a, a relationship between the population and the state, and a, a kind of agreement of the governed to be governed in a certain way, doesn't really exist because there's not so there's not really a state versus a population. There's a cluster of powerful institutions and interests that uh, proceed for their own benefit and uh, that perspective i've come to believe much more than i did than i did initially
0: and in the years that you've been working in this area and, the, and with the access to the documents that you have have you seen a change in the way that these groups are using and maintaining their power or are the tactics still the same
1: it's a, it's an interesting question they're they're adapting to the internet and they're adapting to the communications revolution uh, they're they're, you know, corrupting the democratic potential uh, of the internet, understanding it as a you know, serious threat to their reputation, and they're also using it to integrate with each other. They have seen that the, that the internet um, has bolstered democratic power and have moved to address that through engaging in their own publicity uh, campaigns on the internet, including covert ones. Here in the United Kingdom, it was announced just uh, a few months ago that the UK has started up a 1700 strong social media army within the army to go out and manipulate public perception about the war in Afghanistan amongst other matters. There is a a broader tendency, which is an integrationist tendency, which has been caused by the ability to trade information faster and more accurately, and also uh, financial information, so economic interaction, which is based upon informational interaction. And that has led to a tighter binding together of some of these powerful institutional actors, uh, nationally uh, within the United States, but also internationally. Uh, while the US is the center of gravity of the West, it's far from the only component in it. Uh, the United Kingdom's a serious component. Some parts of France are also important, uh, Israel to a degree. Uh, so that tighter binding together has Moved into some additional formal structures, uh, for example, the State Department, as once as a fairly independent part of U.S. national power, uh, is now, in terms of its budget, uh, subordinated under the U.S. national security budget, and the same with USAID. So there's a, you know, like a pyramid pyramidization of uh, basic U.S. Uh, power structures, and at the same time, an internationalization that is occurring. Uh, across the West. The the most obvious part of that in terms uh, of the Anglo-Saxon West is within the Five Eyes Alliance. So that is the the English-speaking white Western countries of the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, and Great Britain. And they're almost completely integrated in terms of uh, the deep state. So in terms of the, the major intelligence agencies uh, and their automatic sharing... Of most information uh, with each other.
0: After 10 years of, of, of doing this, I mean, is there anything that shocks you anymore?
1: Yes, I mean, it, injustice still shocks me. Uh, hypocrisy still, shock, still shocks me. Um, lies still shock me. I think that's intellectually, of course, they don't. You know, that I understand how these institutions play their games and, you know, that the kind of false rhetoric of a variety of states. So, you can, you can become fairly intellectually cynical, but I think it's important, uh, uh, or at least intellectually skeptical, but I think it's important to, to treasure uh, your ability to be emotionally shocked by injustice and emotionally shocked by lies. Uh, you know, you can get. WikiLeaks is like many kind of organizations at the edge, like soldiers and ambulance staff. We develop a lot of black humor about all this. You know, there's a... I'll give you an example. Um, My favourite cable is also, in some ways, my least favourite cable. It's about an elaborate plot to destroy Kurdish TV, the largest Kurdish TV station, ROJ TV, to wipe it out entirely. Now, Kurdistan uh, are the Kurdish regions of Iraq, Turkey and Syria. Very important now, because topical now, because the Kurds are helping to fight ISIS. Well, Turkey's hated the Kurds for a very long time and has tried to marginalize them in all sorts of ways. In fact, there are more journalists in prison in Turkey than any other country, and they're mostly Kurds or people who support Kurds. So the Prime Minister of Denmark wanted to become the next head of NATO. That's Ramusin, but ROJ-TV was headquartered in Denmark, uh, beams up from Denmark to to EUROSAT, satellite above Europe, and down to those Kurdish regions. Turkey, as a powerful member of NATO, said that it would veto Denmark becoming head of NATO unless Denmark knocked off ROJ TV, destroy that TV station somewhere. Uh, this is um, seen in a cable where the... Uh, head of the legal department of PET, it's a Danish intelligence authority, the sort of equivalent to the CIA, uh, and uh, one of the chief prosecutors uh, in Denmark, equivalent to maybe, say, deputy uh, attorney general in the US context, go in together into the US embassy and speak about ways in which they're going to try and knock off ROJ TV. They're going to look into their taxes, they're going to, see to check again whether there's any connection to the PKK uh, and the US Embassy is encouraging them to be creative. Um, and Obama has signed off on this deal uh, that it's a good thing for Rasmussen to become uh, head of NATO and, yeah, uh, do whatever is required to, to soothe uh, Turkey into accepting that. Um, uh, in this case, the knocking off of ROJTB. So that's precisely what happened. Now, you asked the question, well, was ROJ-TV uh, supporting the uh, PKK, which is uh, alleged to be a Turkish uh, terrorist group? Was there any you know, truth in why that TV station should be knocked off? No. Uh, the Danish twice investigated before in response to complaints by Turkey, um, and they found that ROJ-TV was perfectly normal uh, in its coverage. So ROJ-TV was knocked off and banned. Rasmussen did become... Uh, the head of uh, NATO, the Turks didn't object. Now that cable is being used this year by the Kurds to take the whole matter to the European Court of Human Rights. It's their star exhibit.
0: And so, in in terms of then, I mean, as as a form of censorship, what other types of of censorship have you have you seen?
1: It's an interesting experience being part of this business. My my, I have a. Sort of general conclusion about humanity, which is people are terrified of authority. They are absolutely terrified of it. Um, even our volunteers are often terrified of our authority. Are they doing something we approve of or don't? Um, really, that's a overwhelmingly dominant um, part of the human condition. Uh, quite, quite saddening to see. Um, so small social signals uh, can can produce really quite um, uh, quite um, distinctive self censorship um, in in journalists, in academics, uh, even in just general social social discourse. It's a really sad thing to see, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. And it's something that I write about <coughs> in the first chapter of the book um, that. There was, and still is, a very significant academic censorship of WikiLeaks materials in the United States uh, in the field of uh, foreign policy and international relations. Not so much in other fields, but in that field. And we looked into that. How did that come to be? I, I was just astounded to find it, because... Um, We have published more than two billion words now uh, of U.S. diplomatic cables, uh, right through to this year. Uh, More than 2.7 million cables. So this is the most searchable, the best indexed uh, repository of international relations. And foreign ministries use it every day. Academics in other languages use it every day. Uh, Even in English outside the United States... uh, international relations and foreign policy, academics use it. But in the United States, no. Uh, in other academic journals, such as conflict uh, epidemiology or computational linguistics and so on, our uh, published materials are used all the time, but not in foreign relations. So we investigated how that came to be. Well, there was that period of near absolute hysteria uh, and that infected the national security class and those on its periphery. And unfortunately... A lot of the foreign relations academics uh, are actually on the periphery of all that. Uh, As professors, they train students who go on to the State Department and and operate as feeder schools for D.C. generally. Uh, They have consulting contracts and so on. And one of the uh, premier journals, um, uh, International Relations Quarterly, uh, uh, was found to have a formal policy of never accepting anything from WikiLeaks because they were scared of the legal implications. And the editor of that journal uh, came forward and said that the, he was in an invidious uh, position. But it wouldn't change until the overarching uh, association, uh, which controls another uh, four other journals in the United States to do with foreign relations, changed its policy. Uh, so there is... It's not only self-censorship occurring. There's formal uh, censorship occurring in the academic sphere.
0: Looking now at kind of at the, I guess the the day-to-day running of a of a whistleblower organisation, I mean, with Edward Snowden in exile and Chelsea Manning as serving thirty-five years in prison, has this affected other whistleblowers coming forward?
1: Yeah, a very interesting question, of course. Uh, the reality is uh, we have had thousands of sources whose names are still unknown uh, who are still at their places of employment or who've um, just uh, provided us information once and gone on and these are the glorious invisible uh, examples of successful whistleblowing Uh, now as uh, there's a selection selection problem uh, in the public imagination uh, that those examples are invisible and it's where people end up uh, in strife that um, you end up with more complicated examples like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. Uh, Now the government has also, the US government and other governments, have taken uh, these famous cases uh, and made them even more famous because they want to uh, create a general deterrent uh, from people embarrassing them and making their life difficult. But actually the majority, the overwhelming majority of whistleblowing doesn't end up like that.
0: In terms of wishing a takeaway for people either reading the book or using the, the site with the access to the information, what would you hope that someone would take as a, as a new perspective change from your work?
1: I'm, I'm not sure that people should have a new perspective other than things are, are much more fascinating uh, and complex globally. Um, than they might otherwise seem. That, that this this old narrative about the relationship between the state and the people really this is you know quite a, a nice fairy tale, but it is a fairy tale. If you look at Choms- some of Chomsky's work, uh, Chomsky's work in our analysis is largely borne out. However, the technological revolution has made a, a more sophisticated, uh, integrated, and fluid system uh, than I than Chomsky's classical work. Uh, And the the media is involved in in part of that system, not unsurprisingly. I think WikiLeaks itself is quite an interesting example of something, which is a small international investigative publisher uh, that has been publishing uh, on more than 110 different countries and as part of that started publishing uh, on the United States and Great Britain. Uh, and then we were really in for it. Uh, but despite that, despite public declarations by the Pentagon uh, in a 40-minute press conference, uh, that they were going to go after us and threaten us uh, if we didn't cease publishing and destroy what we'd already published, that we continued on. We are completely victorious in that, in uh, not accepting any form of censorship. Uh, similar head-to-head battle uh, with the quest to save Edward Snowden, uh, where... Uh, CIA, NSA, State Department, FBI, uh, were involved in what, for a brief period, was the world's largest uh, intelligence manhunt. Uh, we went head-to-head uh, uh, in this world-defying contest, and we got Edward Snowden Asylum. It's absurd that, um, that it should be the role of invest- a small investigative publisher to do that, uh, but it does show you that uh, what, is the, what is most important for these major power factions is the demonstration of their uh, institutional power to others. But that's, what, that's their real business, uh, to make people scared of others and to demonstrate their own power. Um, and that's how they manage to grow and sustain themselves. But to some degree, it is largely an illusion. All that secrecy uh, and bureaucracy that they have established also produces incompetence and produces corruption. Uh, and that produces results such as the inability to uh, outfox Wikileaks in terms of its publication or in relation to this quest to say Edward Snowden. Uh, you can see that in one other place as well, which is this extraordinary result in Afghanistan, uh, where Afghanistan was the second poorest country on earth, uh, already you know, um, suffering greatly as a society from destabilization. And two superpowers tried to dominate it, one being the United States, but the other being Western Europe. We normally don't talk about Western Europe as a superpower because it's geopolitically uh, subordinated into the greater Western project, uh, where the center of gravity is the United States. But in terms of expenditure on arms, uh, Western Europe is about 50% of the United States. And in terms of intelligence expenditure, about the same. In terms of its GDP, it's greater than the United States. In terms of its population, 540 million, uh, it's greater than the United States. These two superpowers tried to subordinate a a country of about 30 million people, the second poorest country on earth, over a 10-year period, and were not able to do it. How is that explainable? Uh, It's only explainable in that large military intelligence structures that are engaged in a, a prospect that is more or less immoral um, that the people inside don't really believe in uh, inevitably start becoming corrupt uh, and become efficient, inefficient uh, as a result of secrecy and bureaucracy. So I, I think there are some hopes uh, for civil society, uh, for people who believe in freedom to understand, yes, there's pretty nasty integrationist tendencies with very very powerful agencies, but when they start integrating... Um, they also start integrating in secret. Um, They start becoming very bureaucratic uh, and ultimately quite corrupt and incompetent.
0: WikiLeaks' relationship with the internet has has been a close and integral one. So I I was wondering, given your position, uh, how do you view what's happening at the moment And, and the changes to the internet that are happening and occurring at the moment?
1: The last few years has been a golden age in many ways, for journalism. Uh, many different publications starting on the internet, you know, different flavours. Uh, the problem we're seeing now is one of vertical integration, so distributors are becoming publishers uh, and taking over and consolidating publishing. It's, it's understandable. The internet creates a global market, so inevitably, unless you have global antitrust regulation, which there isn't, you end up with the market leader starting to dominate the whole world in terms of market. Uh, we're seeing that with Apple, we're seeing that with Google, and so on. Uh, Facebook is also introducing you know it's starting to become a regulator of human behavior starting to lay down laws but there's no democratic process in how those laws are are chosen or enforced that's a negative tendency on the other hand young people are very adaptive and inventive and just like with the old uh, telco networks which the internet eventually ran on what we're going to see is new ways of communication new inventions uh, new kinds of social networks, which are being run over the top of all this. The, if we look at the internet as a place where democracy happens, what is that place? Who con- who owns that uh, that place? Well, uh, corporations. Corporations control that, uh, and governments intercept it. Is that a a real place where we can achieve the dreams of human democracy and improvements in human civilization? It's controlled by major corporate. Major corporations and is surveilled by them and uh, titanics by agencies. That seems like a very inhospitable place for humanity to develop at its best. But we can lay over the top of that space, a different space, and disconnect from problems with the, the underlying
0: uh, territory. Julian, what is um, what's driving you at the moment? I mean, what in terms of uh, the world and developments and the way things are moving and changing? What is it right now that has your attention and is interesting you the most?
1: The reason why right now is such an interesting time in in global history is because something is happening to every society at once, and it's the same thing. There's never been a time where that's happened before. Even the risk of thermonuclear warfare, uh, well, okay, it would have wiped out the Northern Hemisphere, but as someone from the South, uh, from Australia... And we knew, well, it might, we might have had a few hits in Melbourne and Sydney, but otherwise basically unaffected, Patagonia unaffected, most of Africa unaffected, humanity would go on. Uh, what's happening to the internet is something that's happening everywhere because every society has merged with the internet as a kind of superstructure for its societal communications. You know, political communications, economic communications, communications between institutions, between states and so on. When the internet goes bad, really bad, it's going to take all of human civilization with it. Mass interception, mass surveillance, okay, the National Security Agency is doing it the most, but uh, the costs are halving every two years, so um, other countries are starting to slowly, starting to catch up. That's something that can create an extremely conformist global society, because everyone starts to worry that not just the National Security Agency is intercepting them, not just D.C. and whatever its weird interests are from one year to the next, but uh, in fact every country that you're in, uh, the establishment of that country uh, is closely surveilling uh, dissent within that country. That can lead to a really very conformist situation, and that conformity can soak into the bones of uh, local cultures. So we all end up perhaps going a little bit too far, but... We develop some of the tendencies of North Korea or maybe socially conformist countries like uh, Sweden or Japan. And that's not a healthy way at all to go.
0: Finally, uh, regarding the, I guess the average person's understanding of all of this and, and the role of WikiLeaks and education, how, how do you view the broader picture of people's understanding and and their ability to change things?
1: Well, I mean, the... Uh, we're seeing at the moment the greatest period of political education has ever happened. It's not been the most intense period in any one particular sector, uh, but the lateral transfer of information from people across the world to each other uh, and the vertical transfer of information that organizations like WikiLeaks do, investigative journalists sucking out you know how these major institutions behave, uh, that has produced a much more educated uh, population uh, than we've ever seen globally there's never been anything like that before uh, and if if you believe that fundamentally the limits on human civilization how civilized it can be the different ways it knows the different mechanisms it has to not do the dumb thing uh, mechanisms for peace and mechanisms for health and mechanisms to resolve conflicts are based on education and our knowledge of ourselves then it's quite optimistic
0: you Julian, uh, I know you're incredibly busy and you're working under some rather trying circumstances. So I'm, I'm really grateful and thanks a lot for, for taking out some time to, to chat with me today. You're most welcome. You have been listening to co-founder and editor-in-chief of the website WikiLeaks, Julian Assange. WikiLeaks has just released a book which focuses on what the release of the secret U.S. diplomatic cables tell us about foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, and the workings of power. If you're interested in listening to some more interviews with authors about topics like power and the way governments and economies work, then you can head over to our website ideasbooks.org and listen to those. Uh, We also have some other author interviews about things like why we daydream, or bringing extinct animals back from the dead. So you can check it all out at ideasbooks.org. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. My name's Craig Barfoot. Thanks a lot for listening.